Okay, the first question that we have here, and I, I hope it's of a um, of a looking for a simplistic answer, because really it, it it could get quite complex. But where does sin come from? Wow, that you could really, and you're not looking at a theologian here, that's for sure. So. Because you've got to go back to the origin of sin itself, and you would go back to Satan himself and Isaiah chapter 14 and all that, and you really wrangle out some things that, that could be very, very deep. But let's keep it very simple and, and think that maybe this was kept very simple. Let's go to Romans chapter 5 and verse 12. Let's point it out. And this is what it says. Wherefore, by one man, sin entered into the world and death by sin and so death passed upon all men for all have sinned and you go back to Genesis chapter 3 and verse 6 and you're, you're dealing with that whole issue when man fell in the garden now you can go back and you can say well then Satan was present that's not the origin because Satan was present now you get into some real thick stuff stuff that we don't have to get into time to get into at this particular point but um that we'll leave it at that. Sin had its origins in a garden when um, the woman was deceived uh, by the serpent and ultimately fell there. And this next question really is part, it, it really uh, it is connected, I suppose. It says, um, uh, when is this church going to preach the gospel? But that has some tentacles to it. And, and I, can, I can really fully understand some of those tentacles. Uh, I grew up where we had a Sunday evening gospel meeting. Okay, and so um, the whole idea was there that, that we're going to preach the gospel on Sunday night. Now, if you would have came to those meetings, you know, 40 years ago, you'd have found out that very few of them actually preached the gospel. Because the, the, the general bend and the general emphasis of the body of Christ, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it, is not necessarily to preach the gospel. Now, we do preach the gospel, and it is brought out on many occasions. I, I know Ron brings it out, Malcolm's brings other people have come out. It comes out in the ministry. There, there's no question about that. But, but when it comes to the church, the body of Christ, you know, the Lord Jesus Christ dealt with Peter, John 21, three times... Feed my sheep, feed my sheep, feed my sheep. And so there's a feeding process that goes on inside this building, and, and it's a very healthy process. We need that process, don't we? And then we go out, go into all the world and preach the gospel. Now, the gospel can be preached inside. Don't get me wrong in this. We can't preach the gospel inside. You can't gather as believers without it, your very gathering, emphasizing the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. So it's, it's, it's brought out many times, and obviously where it's brought out to me crystal clear is when we gather together corporately in worship. So there's four tenets, doctrine, fellowship, breaking of bread, uh, doctrine, fellowship, breaking of bread, uh, uh, and prayer. Sorry, getting that fourth one there. And none of those is, is directly emphasizing the gospel of our Lord Jesus. But I think we had a little bit of a, and I, and I question that uh, even even as I was older, as I went back to that home assembly, I, I wondered, you know, what, where were we going with that? What is that? Well, you've got, you've, you've got to have your gospel meeting. 
But the problem was there was no going out of those doors. So what was what was really brought to our attention many years ago as we came together as elders is that we need to go out these doors and preach the gospel. And that that is what... Um, that, that, that's the emphasis of this assembly. We go outside and preach the gospel. We do preach the gospel inside. There's no question about that. But the, the actual gospel preaching is when we're equipped. As we come together, we're, in, we're encouraged, we're, we're equipped, and then we go out into a dying world. As I look around me in this room, it would be hard-pressed to find anyone here that does not profess the name of the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior. It would be, be pretty hard to do. So it's out there. It's, it's not necessarily uh, inside here. Okay, and now who? Oh, Andrew. Andrew. Good evening. I have a simple little question. I'll read it to you. Wasn't the first man, Adam, created with spiritual attributes which, attributes which got messed up because of the fall? God sent them out of the garden so they would not eat of the tree of life and live forever. Wasn't man created never to die? Didn't death come as a result of the fall? When is a person born? Didn't they exist spiritually before birth? Is the spirit of a person created? So, um, not quite that simple, but um, we're just going to start digging into some scriptures. Uh, It's very difficult to answer these questions in that order. Because as you answer one, you begin to just uh, weave through all of them. So we're just going to start looking at some concepts in scripture and then maybe review those questions at the end and see if we have uh, come across the answers uh, to those questions. Along with those questions were included two references in particular, so I think that's a good place for us to start. First one is in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. First Corinthians chapter 15 verse 46 It says however the spiritual is not first but the natural then the spiritual That question was tied uh, that that reference was tied to the question wasn't the first man Adam created with spiritual attributes which got messed up because of the fall. So I think it's important to notice that two things. What was it that got uh, lost or messed up as a part of the fall? And then also what exactly this verse is talking about. So for starters, what was lost in the fall? We can read in uh, Genesis and see the curses and the pain that were brought about by sin. But what was truly lost was innocence, right? 
So we are all born, as it were, with this propensity or this natural uh, bent, this in- inclination to sin. Adam did not seem to have a natural inclination to sin. And what I mean by that is we've all heard this idea that you don't have to teach a child how to sin, right? They're born, they know how to sin. But based on what we see, the event, the the order of things in Scripture, it seems that Adam was indeed told to sin, right? He was tempted. He was the first, the only person that ever experientially learned to sin. He was tempted and began to sin. And I believe at that point, that sinful nature within Adam began to grow. The desire to sin that we are all born with. So his innocence was lost. He, he developed this knowledge now of good and evil. In Genesis 3, verse 7. Shortly or immediately after eating the fruit, it said the eyes of both of them were opened. And they knew that they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made loincloths for themselves. And in verse 8, it says, When the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden, they hid. So what was lost? Innocence was lost, and the, the perfect communion that they had with God seems to have been lost. They're now hiding from God. A reference in Genesis was also included in, in one of these questions. Uh, it said, God sent them out of the garden so that they would not eat of the tree of life and live forever. Wasn't man created never to die? The reference there is Genesis 3.22. It says, The Lord God said, Since man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil, he must not reach out, take from the tree of life, eat, and live forever. It's very important to note that Adam prior to the fall, created to live forever, that that life was tied to obedience, not redemption, right? We have an eternal life because we've accepted the sacrifice that Christ made for us. Now, we do. We continue to sin sometimes, right? But we don't lose our eternal life because of that, right? Our, or Adam's life was tied directly to obedience. So the moment that he disobeyed that gift of life was removed. His body began immediately to decay and his spirit died. We see that, that his eyes were opened and he started to hide from God. So it seems that when we receive Christ and we have our new nature, we're no longer bound to operate under the way that it, under the old way. We now have access to this Holy Spirit, a force powerful enough to allow us to resist sin.
which is in contrast to uh, Adam. That Adam necessarily didn't have a new nature, did he? Adam was simply innocent until he sinned. The questions also go on to say, didn't death come as a result of the fall? Well, that spiritual death, right, that uh, in a sense you could say the spiritual death was actually an awakening of that sinful nature coming, coming to light and coming to be, uh, be, begin being fed and be stronger. And it goes on to say, didn't that person exist spiritually before birth? Let, let's, let's circle back here, because like I said, it's hard to get these through in order. Um, in, in Romans, right, it's this idea that we are now uh, freed from slavery to sin. Romans chapter 6, verse 7. says that since a person, or rather when a person, has died, they are freed from sin's claims. Now this comes back to that reference that was included in our question. 1 Corinthians 15.46 that said, wasn't the natural, or, or the natural is first. Right? In that passage in Corinthians, Paul goes on to explain what he's talking about there. Because it's talking about the resurrection of our bodies. Right? Our natural body indeed comes first. So let's get the context of that passage to start tying all these different things together about sin and slavery to sin and uh, you know what Adam lost. It's all contained in the context surrounding these verses. Starting in verse 35 of 1 Corinthians 15. Some will say, how are the dead raised? What kind of body will they have when they come? Foolish one, what you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And as for what you sow, you are not sowing the future body, but only a seed, perhaps of wheat or another grain. But God gives it a body as he wants, and to each of these seeds its own body. Not all flesh is the same flesh. There is one flesh for humans, another for animals, another for birds, and another for fish. Alright, now here's the verse that really unlocks verse 46. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies. But the splendor of the heavenly bodies is different from that of the earthly ones. So in that verse 46 here, it said, The spiritual is not first, but the natural I wonder if the person writing this question was considering the physical body versus the spirit itself. But rather, this verse is talking about the physical body in contrast to the spiritual body. So, Paul goes on to compare this body to a seed, sown in corruption, raised in incorruption. Sown in dishonor, raised in glory. Sown in weakness, raised in power. Sown in a natural body, raised in a spiritual body. 
If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being, right? The Spirit of God breathed life into that body after it was created. And the last Adam became a life-giving spirit. So the first Adam had the breath of God come into him, and the second Adam gives that very breath. And then it says, the spiritual is not first, but the natural, then the spiritual. So this reference in 1 Corinthians is indeed talking about the resurrected body that we get. See, when we receive that new nature, it's, if you would, trapped inside of our natural bodies, not yet able to fully express itself until we are resurrected into our incorruptible, glorified body. Where now, although we have our free will and our free nature, that new nature is now powerful enough that our desire to sin is no longer there, right? This is why we don't sin in heaven, right? Romans 6, that's what it said. Uh, those who have died are now freed from sin. And so the question, uh, didn't they exist spiritually before birth? Um, it's not really related to this passage, the spiritual body and the natural body. But the question of did someone exist spiritually before birth we can see answered in Zechariah. Actually, if I can get a reader for that. Zechariah, uh, chapter 12, verse 1. Whoever has that. Zechariah 12, verse 1. says he forms the spirit of man within him. All right, so God forms the spirit of a man within him. So it seems to me that no, people do not exist spiritually, uh, perhaps before birth maybe, but not before conception, right? It seems that if God forms the man the spirit of a man within him, right? During that process of knitting knitting us together in the womb, that he is in fact creating that spirit. Falls into the next question. Is the spirit of a person created? Yes. John 1 verse 3. It says all things were created through him. And apart from him not one thing was created that has been created. So of course our spirits cannot exist independently of God. God indeed created our spirits and seems to form them within us. So Let's read through those questions again, trying to rope all of this together. Wasn't Adam the first man created with spiritual attributes which got messed up because of the fall? His innocence was lost, his spirit died, his body began to decay. Wasn't man created never to die? Yes, but it was tied to obedience. 
when Adam sinned, that eternal physical life was lost. And praise the Lord that it was, because based on the painful description of the cursed body, you wouldn't want to live eternally in that body, suffering and decaying. Right? Imagine if you had to decay forever without dying. Didn't death come as a result of the fall? Yes, absolutely. And the question, when is a person born? I think the physical answer to that is fairly obvious. Um, so I imagine this is more in reference to the spirit. And I think Zechariah answers that for us. That the spirit is formed within the man while we're being knit together in the womb. Which leads into, didn't they exist spiritually before birth? Before birth, yes, but not prior to their conception. And is the spirit of a person created? Of course, absolutely. All things were created through him. Now this could lead into, um, since that, for, that passage in Corinthians is actually talking about what happens to the natural body after the resurrection, uh, we could look at um, the differences in the pre-fall body of Adam and our resurrected body in contrast with the fact that we have a new nature that Adam did not have and how all of that works together. Uh, but as far as just those questions themselves, um, I think that the scripture uh, does explain most of them sufficiently. However, like I said, it's very difficult to answer them in order and coherently. So, if we have a moment for anyone that wants to clear up anything I just said or ask any other questions about that, if we have a moment to allow that. Um, briefly, if anyone has anything to add or clarify. Right, absolutely. A, a spirit that exists, um, especially prior to God, doesn't even logically make sense because it would have to be a necessary spirit and God is the only necessary spirit. Um, being necessary is one of the attributes of something that is uncreated. To be uncreated, you have to be necessary. right? And that passage in John said, all that is created was created by him. So, which also means everything that was created is unnecessary, right? So we're not, you know... That's special. Uh, but God, being a necessary first cause, was uncreated. And so, because when you read that passage of John, it says all things that were created are created through him. Sometimes it allows you to think, well, what about things that weren't created? But indeed, God is the only uncreated thing. Salvation, right? So there 
breathe life, right? And renew that life that was uh, corrupted, right? It's a new life, right? A, a new life. It's not different than the life that Adam was originally uh, granted, I would say, um, but having, having defiled that life, right? He would need a new life. I mean, just a uh, scenario, just an interesting concept. Absolutely. All right. As long as there's no emergency last statements, who do we know who's next? Is it Rex? Rex. received a question as well to address and mine was a, uh, a veritable can of worms possibly <laughs> as is potentially everything there we go so polygamy <laughs> uh, why weren't the Old Testament patriarchs rebuked or punished by God for their polygamy now we'll get anecdotal later um, about the, the re repercussions of polygamy, but let's look at uh, some uh, realistic definitions first. Let's just not call it polygamy, let's call it what kind? You know, there's, you can go both ways with it. Or even any, I guess in today's society, any derivative of plurals of spouses, you know, that people can imagine. But uh, your two basic types of polygamy are uh, one man taking many wives, one woman taking many husbands, much less the norm, and uh, most certainly polygamy, poly, polygyny is implied, uh, I think, in this question, as all the patriarchs were men, and they, you know, typically they took wives, as far as we know. So, moving on, questions to consider. What kind of judgment or rebuke are we talking about? Uh, why, why weren't they punished? What type of punishment are you talking about? Why weren't they judged or, or, uh, or rebuked? Well. You know, as we'll see, polygamy is its own rebuke in many ways. Um, there's the anecdotal part. <laughs> and uh, so, are we talking about the kind of judgment? I have to look up here too. I'm sorry. Maybe I'll turn this a bit. Um, in Second Corinthians 5:10 through 11, I listed out: For we must all be manifested before the judgment seat of Christ, that each may receive the things done in the body according to those uh, according to those he has done whether it be good or evil, knowing therefore the terror of the Lord, we persuade men, but have been manifested to God. I also hope they have been manifested in your consciences. So are we appearing for the judgment seat of Christ? Are these people patriarchs believers and they're going to be evaluated by Christ after they've been uh, resurrected into his judgment? <clears throat> or are we referring to uh, the other type of judgment, you know, for you're not come to the mount that might be touched, that burned with fire, unto blackness and darkness and tempest, and the sound of a trumpet voice of words, and I'm going to skip to, but you're coming to Mount Zion, uh, and unto the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and in So which mount are you being judged by? You're being judged by the mount that burned with fire, unto condemnation, unto the law, or are you being judged by Mount Zion, which we are come to, in the judgment of the Lord. Again, that's just referring to 
I believe, the judgment seat of Christ. Hebrews chapter 12 also deals, uh, we'll, we'll be in there again later on, deals with the chastening of sons as opposed to those who are not sons, uh, partially there. So, what type of judgment or rebuke should have the, these patriarchs have uh, uh, endured? And so, um, you know, we consider that. Again, I, I will mention that many of, much of this <coughs> is geared towards stating that the that polygamy, for many of, I, I think for everyone that, that's listed here, was its own rebuke and potential punishment. So before we proceed, let me ask uh, just a general question, just to think about. Um, those who are parents in the room, uh, despite your best, uh, I have nothing to correct of my child, but I can remember my parents and the way they dealt with me sometimes. Despite your best attempts to correct and instruct a child, uh, have you ever had to just wipe your hands clean of a situation and watch them, you know, go off into a, Things and well, you, you're, we're well informed, and you can just go ahead and jump off that you know cliff right there, and uh, we'll, we'll deal with the concussion later. Anyone been not, not that extreme, but I mean some some situations like that, you know. Or you say, okay, well, go ahead, and uh, you you don't want to follow what I've uh, set forward for you, you know, to, then you're going to have to uh, deal with the consequences of it. I think that's a notion that's not too foreign for us to consider. And since there are so many parents in the room, I think that it'll hit a particular chord, especially since in Hebrews 12 we're talking about the chastening of sons. All right. Was was rebuke necessary? We have Jacob and his sons. Jacob, a well-beloved son. We're talking about patriarchs. So my first half of this presentation is about patriarchs and then to non-patriarchs. What I consider to be patriarchs are the people who came... um, Israel's 12 sons and prior. I don't know that I would consider David and Solomon patriarchs of the faith because uh, they came after the establishment of Israel as a nation in the wilderness. So, we have Jacob and his sons. We have Abraham and Hagar. Jacob had a well, was a well, had a well-beloved son, excuse me, a firstborn of his favorite wife. The special relationship eventually caused his brothers to despise him and desire to kill him. Now, is it possible that the Lord allowed Jacob to defy his father's command, which was to get a wife from his kindred, not wives, a wife? Uh, Was it possible he allowed him to defy his father's command and take multiple wives so that later on he could save the house of Israel, the land of Egypt, and make one of the most complete pictures of Christ? For instance, is it so far-fetched to think that the Lord could take Jacob's poor decision let's say, to uh, dress up as his brother and steal his blessing uh, and, and turn that situation to his benefit. That now, we, we get into some uh, things that we may not uh, fully comprehend, but I would, I would um, remind us all as we consider these difficult situations to consider uh, the question that the Lord had for Job. Where were you when I formed the foundations of the earth? You know, who are we to question uh, the things that the Lord did through these patriarchs? I mean, this was a time of trying and of revelation for these men. And uh, as, unfortunately, for them, and not like as for us, they didn't have all the revelation we have. They didn't have everything clear as day. This is before Leviticus and before De- Deuteronomy, where there's very clear demands laid out for them. 
So we have to uh, pr- proceed here. We have Abraham and Hagar. Paul's letters to the Galatians explains in detail uh, the implications of the two sons of Abraham. It's clear that the Lord only considered Abraham to have one son. Remember when he took him up to Mount Moriah? Take now thine only son, Isaac. And this is after also Ishmael had been cast out too. So just for the sake of, it's not just that the Lord considered him to have one son as if Ishmael didn't exist. At that time, there was only Isaac. And as the heir of the promises, it's only Isaac. So why was there no rebuke or judgment meted? Is it possible that this event was allowed to take place so the Lord could make a clear distinction between the son and heir and the son of bondage? Again, expounded in Galatians chapter 4. So, if this hadn't taken place, would we have Paul saying in Galatians chapter 4, as Sarah said, cast out the bondwoman, she shall not be heir with my son. No, it couldn't have happened. So this indiscretion was allowed to happen so that a spiritual truth might be revealed. That's what I'm, what I'm trying to get to the bottom of here. Which patriarchs? We have Adam and Eve. One man, one woman. We'll get into that in a couple. Noah and his sons each had one wife. Lamech, not a patriarch, but listed in genealogies of Cain in Genesis chapter 4. He was the first person mentioned to take two wives, and he's also the first recorded murderer after Cain. Unrelated, but just, you know, facts I thought I'd throw in there. (laughs) Maybe he was driven to it. No, I don't know. (laughs) But uh, we have Abraham and Sarah and Hagar. (laughs) And later, Abraham, after the death of Sarah, Abraham married Keturah, which is not considered polygamy. One at a time is still not polygamy, and the bonds of death release Abraham and Sarah of their commitments. Isaac had Rebekah. Jacob, the uh, beginner of the author of Trouble here, uh, had two wives, and their two servants acted as childbearing uh, surrogates. Esau, also not a patriarch, made sure to distinguish that, had three wives. So here's our um, Old Testament polygamist. I forgot to mention Job, and he had one wife as well. I wouldn't necessarily consider him a patriarch either, but worth mentioning. So Jacob's sons, very little is recorded about their wives that I know of. I couldn't really find much. Um, there is much recorded about their sons. Um, because that's where we draw our genealogical implications. Um, you know, Reuben, Gad, Dan, Joseph had Ephraim and Manasseh, uh, Simon, Asher, Naphtali, Benjamin, Levi. Okay, we have all the sons here, and uh, we're not told, so I can't say much about it. So more questions to consider. Why wasn't Jacob judge rebuke? Jacob's problem started with the deception of his father-in-law, Laban. I shouldn't say that they started with that. They continued with that. Uh, who tricked him into marrying Leah first. Jacob had to labor 14 years of labor to acquire Rachel and Leah, and then proceeded to fight amongst, who then proceeded to fight amongst themselves. Remember, um, in a situation like Elkanah's two wives, right? We had Hannah, the other wife of Elkanah, always fighting over who had children, who didn't. Similar situation, Rebecca was barren, and uh, Leah was not. She was fruitful. And so Rebecca said, well, here, take my servant. And then Leah was like, oh, yeah, we'll take my servant. And then you have a bunch of infighting. Uh, until Rachel's death after the birth of Benjamin. And this is after Joseph had already gone his way into his captivity. Jacob's children then picked up the torch and fought against Joseph, the most beloved of the sons. And Jacob was put through countless grief because of his decision to have multiple wives. Now, how much of his was his decision or circumstances that happened, I don't know. But I do know that at some point he continued with the plurality of wives. He didn't deny uh, going into 
the servants of both of his you know, legal wives. And uh, unfortunately for him, only trouble ensued. And I don't know, can we agree on that before? Yeah, I think we can agree that, that was, it was trouble. Remember the troubles he had with Joseph when he was in Egypt? All the grief that he had of being bereaved of Joseph and then the thought of the grief of being bereaved of Benjamin? And, uh, and, and all, he, he, all unbeknownst to him, it was at the hands of the rest of his sons. You know, so I mean, the grief, nothing but grief for Israel. Oh, I was an Abraham judge rebuked. Well, he was, a little bit, by Sarai, uh, who was still named that, in Genesis 16.5. And by casting out Hagar and Ishmael, um, Sarah uh, says, when, she, when Sarah recognized that Hagar had, born a chi- had conceived a child with Abraham, um, she said, my wrong be upon me because I've caused you to do this. And Abraham himself was grieved when he was commanded by you know, his wife and agreed upon with the Lord to cast out the bondwoman with her son because that son would not be heirs with them. Uh, yet the Lord comforts Abraham in this and he says, it's okay. I promise that I'll make of him a great nation. I'll multiply him as well. If Ishmael. It said here, and Abraham had, had his due share of difficulty because of his decisions, these polygamous type decisions. So, non-patriarch polygamy. We're moving on to a different category of men who are also uh, pronounced polygamists, which most people who are unbelievers, or maybe even believers, point to, to maybe try to justify having multiple wives. Yet, I don't think they understand the full concept of a cautionary tale sometimes. Um, these men did not get what they were looking for having all these wives, unless this was what they were looking for. So let's get into it. Uh, We have seven wives by name of David, uh, most notoriously Bathsheba, the the wife whom he stole. And uh, we have several, uh, you know, unnumbered and undisclosed wives mentioned in 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 13, that when David came into Jerusalem, he took wives and he had children. That's the statement. So are some of those wives the one we know by name? Yes, possibly. There could be countless others we don't know about. So we have to take that for what it is. Uh, when Was he judged slash rebuked? I say absolutely he was. Now, for all of his wives up to Bathsheba, I think Michael, the daughter of Saul, bore him a little rebuke when uh, he returned with the ark to Jerusalem. And... Uh, he, he said that he would, uh, you know, basically he, he cut off all his dealings with her as far as marital purposes are concerned. And uh, Bathsheba's first son, let's talk about, uh, we all know, uh, I'm, there's many things I'm assuming we're familiar with, because so, we didn't really have time to get into everything, but I'm familiar with uh, David's sin with Bathsheba. And Bathsheba's first son, there's your anguish right there. Uh, after seven days, the child dies, and... Unfortunately, after that, David's family was nothing but a perpetual heartache for him. And uh, we, can, we can just mention the incestuous rape of Tamar. The incestuous rape of Tamar led to the death of his son Amnon at the hands of Absalom. Absalom was killed by David's captain after he tried to usurp the kingdom. And we have unnamed baby listed here just because it was a child, son, you know, either way. And Adonijah, after David's death, was also um, uh, killed. So, and perpetual infighting amongst his siblings. So, did David's uh, did he go unrebuked? I don't think so. Unjudged? No. I mean, the, the Lord told him that he was judged. 
So an answer, you know, the partial answer to that question is, did all these patriarchs get off easy? I don't believe so. Um, David was plagued by a household of destruction and bitterness because of a decision to take multiple wives, particularly those that were not his to take. All right, and we have Solomon. We're getting into the notorious people now. Known for eventually accumulating a thousand wives slash concubines, we have 700 of, uh, I'm sorry, 300 of wives, 700 of concubines. And uh, can you imagine? Just, I, just why? <laughs> he married with forbidden populaces. Deuteronomy 7 specifically forbids him from marrying the people that he, that he ended up taking wives from. He was guilty of multiplying wives. Specifically forbidden from, t from multiplying horses, wives, gold and silver. And that middle one, and actually I, I could even say possibly all of it in the end, his wives turned his heart away. So did Solomon go unrebuked and unjudged? I don't believe so because the Lord was angry with him and, told, and vowed to rend the kingdom from him in 1 Kings 11. He got judged. He, and, and was it because of his polygamy? Specifically, no, but the consequences of it. So what does the scripture say about marriage? One woman was created from man. That's Genesis chapter 2. And I thought I would throw in there just as a little anecdotal note. We have many ribs. Just, you know, you can, we have a whole chest full of ribs. Why only one man, one woman? We'll get into that in a few. It's reiterated by Christ in Matthew chapter 9. They, what, the, the Pharisees try to tempt him, saying, what about this bill of divorcement? And uh, the Lord says, have you not written that they too shall be one flesh? You know, there we are. It was only for the hardness of your hearts that Moses wrote that bill of divorcement. And uh, they too. So Christ says, what was right here was said in the beginning, they too. Man and a woman, Christ says, they too. I think we have you know, a twofold witness right there that this is where we can really push the development of the notion of one man and one woman for our definitions of marriage um, and kind of rule out like let, let's say you know I was, I was looking for what about all these polygamous people they weren't judged so therefore you know we shouldn't be judged if we want to be polygamous in any uh, manifestation of that word uh, but I don't think so I think that um, if, you're, if you're going for the intentions and purposes of God's creation and Christ's purposes in the New Testament, uh, we have to stick with one man and one woman. And there's no deviation from that that we can really support. Um, it's worth mentioning, though, that there are many things that exist in the Bible that aren't condoned. For instance, the incestuous rape of Tamar. It's not mentioned that the Lord condones it, yet you have, it's recorded. So just because I, I think many unbelievers have the notion that because something exists in the Bible, for instance... Uh, in Exodus, we have the law of the Hebrew slaves. Does that mean that the Bible endorses slavery? No, but they had slaves. You have to have the laws regarding them. You know, does the Bible, does the Lord condone rape? No, but it's recorded. I mean, just because bad things are recorded doesn't mean that everything in the Bible... I don't think we need to spend more time on that notion. So we'll move on. Wives, and we're explained by Paul... So here's why one man, one woman, because it's one Christ to one body. Um, that's, that's the implications that we're drawing here from multiple places. But this is the easiest to understand for everyone. 
since we can't get too expansive for sake of time. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church. And he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, as the church is subject unto Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, uh, that he might present it to himself a glorious church, not having, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. So ought men to love their wives as their own bodies. He that loves his wife loves himself. And why is that? Because they too are one flesh. For no man ever yet hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, even as the Lord the church. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and his bones. So, what are the intended purposes of one man and one woman? Well, as I say about many things, I think that everything in our creation was designed by God for him to reveal himself to us. Why do vines have branches? So that the Lord could say, I am the vine, ye are the branches. Why do, why do trees bear fruit? So the Lord could say to us, Go, be, you be fruitful and glorify my Father. So why has he created one man and one woman? Because there is one Redeemer for one body. And so I think we can say that uh, pretty surely here. Um, uh-oh. Yeah, here we are. Part of my conclusion. Part A. <laughs> Uh, we have in Hebrews, wherefore seeing, oh, we're also comp- I'm sorry, wherefore seeing, we're also compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses. Let us lay aside every weight and the sin which, the, which does easily beset us, and let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. For the, who, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross, despising the shame. What does this have to do with polygamy? And set it down in the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest you be wearied and faint in your minds. Ye have not resisted unto blood, striving against sin, and ye have forgotten the exhortation which speaketh unto you as, as unto children. My son, despise not thou the chastening of the Lord. So here we are. The rebuke, the judgment. Where do these people get off with the rebuke and the judgment? Don't despise the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou art rebuked of him. For whom the Lord loveth, he chasteneth. And scourgeth every son whom he receiveth. If you endure chastening, God dealeth with you as with sons. For what son is he whom the father chasteneth not? So let's regard some of these patriarchs that we've mentioned. Jacob, how was he dealt with? Did not the Lord reason with him? And seek, despite Jacob's best efforts to find a blessing for him? Why? Because Jacob was a son. So he was brought through the chastening process and it cost him a lot. Um, David was brought very low. But I mean, I think in our minds, well, why didn't the Lord just immediately rend the kingdom from him? Why? Because he repented. And so when we have these things, uh, the Lord put them through his chastening process, not ours. And David didn't get what we think he deserves. You know, we, we have to remember, as we'll see in the second part of the conclusion. Anyways, uh, Solomon, the kingdom would be rent from his hands, but by, from his son, not from him. So even in this judgment, in this chastening process, there's mercy. Um, but if you be without chastisement, whereof all are partakers, right? <laughs> then you're, you know, bastards and not sons. You're illegitimate. Furthermore, we have had fathers 
of our flesh which corrected us, and we gave them reverence, shall we not much rather be in subjection unto the Father of spirits and live? For they verily for a few days chastened us after their own pleasure, but he for our profit, that we might be partakers of his holiness. Now, here's where we get into the part where I was saying, is it possible that the Lord allowed this to happen so that this could be expounded later on. So is it possible that the Lord allowed Hagar, or Abraham to make the mistake with Hagar so that later on that we might be partakers of his holiness and might understand a little bit more? Is it possible that that was the Lord's chastening process for him? I'm not saying yes it is, but I'm just I'm indulging the question so we can consider it. Uh, now no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward, it yieldeth peaceable fruit of righteousness. What was the peaceable fruit of righteousness in the life of Joseph? Again, the stem of Jacob's polygamy. Well, here we are. We have that complete picture of uh, one of the most complete pictures of Christ, right? We have the salvation of Israel, the nation, and all his brethren who despised him and all their children. They got to live. So here we are. There's a peaceable fruit. Again, but it was at the hands of indiscretion. So there's a chastening process. The Lord is not out for uh, revenge. He's not out for uh, to, to work things pettily and cruelly. He's out to make profit, to bear fruit. Um, sorry, and uh, let's say, peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. Wherefore, lift up the hands which hang down and the feeble knees and make straight the paths of your feet. Let that which was lame be turned out of the way. Let it rather be healed. So here we go. What, do, do we want to continue in lameness? Do we want to continue? No, we want to be healed. So that's why I think the Lord healed many of these situations. Um, but let it, sorry, follow peace with all men in holiness, without which no man shall see the Lord looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up uh, trouble you, and thereby many be defiled. So what could have happened? Uh, let's look at one of those situations we mentioned. Amnon rapes Tamar. And then what, what happens? The root of bitterness springs up in who? Absalom. And then who's defiled? The entire nation. At the attempted coup. So here, here we have a great admonishment. And uh, did it work? Going back. There we are. So... In light of the, uh, the mentality in which we would ask such a question, there's a couple things. I'm either asking it, maybe thinking, oh, I don't know what the Bible says about marriage. I don't know what it says about polygamy. So why weren't they judged? It seems like it's something that's pretty clear cut, one man, one woman. So why the leniency? Uh, there's also the person might be looking to justify polygamy. You know, they weren't judged. So therefore, it must be okay. And there's the other person that might look at the question in this, or ask the, the question in this way and say, you know, they should have gotten what was coming to them. And to them, I would say, speak not evil one of another, brethren. And uh, to those who have gone on before us as that great cloud of witnesses and those that will come after us, uh, he that speaketh evil of his brother and judges his brother speaketh evil of the law and judgeth the law. Uh, who are you to judge the actions of David? Who am I to judge? You know, what if David were to look at me present day and have everything written down about Rex Hartman? I wonder what he might judge against me. Again, since the Lord said of him, he's a man who's after his own heart. So when we look at these Old Testament people, we, we uh, tend to focus on their errant actions. Now, but if thou judge the law, thou art not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is one lawgiver who is able to save and destroy. 
Who art thou that judgest another? So we have to consider the possibility that the Old Testament patriarchs and non-patriarchs who were in the faith didn't receive the judgment for the same reason we don't. That they were justified before God in the faith and found mercy and grace in spite of their poor decisions. And so I've already said that maybe it's possible that the Lord allowed them to make those decisions because ultimately he would find a way to twist their circumstance to make that profit for the rest of us who would come after. Who is a God like unto thee that pardons iniquity and passes by the transgression of the remnant of his heritage? He retains not his anger forever, but he delights in mercy. And I think that's the best thing we can take away from this discussion. So said many things, and I didn't allow any questions <laughs> during everything so we could get through it. Um, any questions? Any statements that you'd like to add, contradict me on? I'm very open to it. <laughs> yes, sir. So you're asking, did God's people judge other nations like uh, would you be referring to an instance like where as Joshua brought the people in they, they were told to like you know wipe certain cities out and destroy them that type of judgment yes however I would say that that was not an initiative of the people to do that that was a command from God and that's a reference I, I would say that's the fulfillment of what the Lord had told um, Abraham back in Genesis, that the, the time of the iniquity of the Canaanites was not yet full. By the time he brings Israel in there, it's full. And the Lord wants to judge them, and he's simply choosing his people to do it. Now, we could also say that there's other ways he could have done it, right? What about the old fire and brimstone from heaven way that uh, judged Sodom and Gomorrah? He could have laid waste to the entire uh, land of Canaan the similar way, right? I mean, theoretically, but he didn't. He used his people because he had a plan for those people and he had things to teach, again, the rest of us who would come after and be recipients of his grace about uh, the way he does things. So. Yes, sir. I mean, I think we can even, if, if we were to have time to reminisce about our own lives, had we not been where we were, at, we were at, as we were at, this, at the time we were at it, you know, how could have God put me where I am right today? Had I not made all those terrible, stupid decisions that wound me in the mess? I mean, it's, it's by his, again, by his grace and mercy that he's willing to overlook those transgressions just <laughs> for our profit. Um, is there anyone after me? Dave had a question, but I think oh, oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, we'll do it next, next Sunday night. Right? Uh, yeah. We have several other questions, but they'll probably have to wait until next oh. No, no. Well, <laughs> I, I tried to hurry. <laughs> okay. Uh, well, I'll leave it at that. And oh, oh, yeah, we're oh, yeah, we're closing the meeting. That's my fault. Okay. Uh, let's let's all. Uh, I tell you what, um, 
it's been great to be able to present, as I'm sure with everyone else uh, that's been challenged and charged with these questions. And uh, I, I, look, I, I really enjoy this time, not to take too much more of our, our time here, but um, you know, I encourage anyone else who has any questions, no, how, no, no matter how uh, simple or uh, profoundly uh, ridiculous they may seem, just ask them. You know. These elders here are more, more than willing to answer anything that we could ever ask. Anyways, uh, before we go, let's let's uh, entreat the Lord for our safety on our way home and uh, ask his blessing on the reading of his word and uh, our attempts to grow in his grace and knowledge. Our Heavenly Father, we thank you for this night that you've, uh, you've drawn us all together and you've brought us out of the world in order that, that we might be the body of your Son, Jesus Christ. And Lord, as we uh, travel our, to our homes tonight, I pray that all these things would be upon our minds and upon our hearts. And that continually you draw our hearts and minds into your word, that we might be changed and conformed to the image of your Son. And Lord, I also ask that uh, as we pursue all these uh, wonderful studies we have into your word, that, uh, Father, you would help us to truly fulfill the vision of your Son, and that we might be one in him, that we might be one with you. And uh, Lord, I don't think there's anything greater we could ask this evening except that you uh, continually uh, bathe us in your mercy and grace and that we might be able to carry on in this world uh, seeking to fulfill your will. And we ask all this in the name of our Lord. Amen.